Hi, Redemption Peoria. Good to be with you guys. What a, what a fun group of people to be with. Just a lot of just uh, meeting folks and laughing and uh, celebrating that they're part of a, a healthy, growing congregation. And that's what's happening here. You know, uh, this gathering, in terms of what's going on in the world, is kind of a humble little group. There's not thousands here. There's not a lot of celebrities here. Uh, but in the eyes of God, this is as important a gathering as there is on the planet right now. Isn't that astounding? You are the people for whom Christ died. He purchased you with his blood. He loves you. Uh, the Father said to Jesus, uh, how far must we go to save them? And Jesus said, I'll go all the way to the cross to save them because I love them. And uh, I can never get over that. I was introduced to that amazing gospel as uh, a fraternity guy over at ASU. You got any ASU grads here that want to admit it? <laughs> Rough football game last night. But uh, yeah, that's where the Lord found me. The Lord is at ASU, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Has to be, you know, it's the front lines right there. Uh, and I was uh, dating my girlfriend, Margie. Margie, wave your hand and uh, told her that uh, Jesus had come into my life and something changed. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. And four days later, uh, the Spirit of God just cracked her open and she received Christ. And we've been on this journey together ever since. So it's been a great partnership and gift the Lord's given us together. But I'm, I'm delighted to be with you today is also 9-11, uh, right? And uh, it's one of those times in your history when you remember where you were for 9-11. I remember Margie was watching the news up in our bedroom and I was getting ready and she said, honey, you gotta come in here and see this. And uh, you know, you couldn't believe what you were watching on the television, these planes crashing into the Twin Towers. Uh, and then that great story of heroism, Flight 93, where uh, the passengers rose up and said, we know what's going on, we're not going to let them do that. And they rushed the cockpit and it caused the plane to crash and saved either the White House or the Capitol building. That was, those were the targets. So uh, it's a moment to be grateful, but uh, also to be sobered in prayer for what it cost us as a nation. And, and it seems to kind of move into our passage that sometimes... Uh, God sovereignly purpose or allows heartbreaking things to happen. And as believers, we always pause and ask, what's going on here, Lord? What's going on here? And 9-11 was certainly one of those times to say, as a nation, I remember the churches were full for about a month, about a month. <laughs> so it got folks' attention for a while. Uh, but in our own life, when hard things happen, as a Christian, you know, I hang on Romans 8. Uh, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I know God isn't going to be punishing me for my sins, but I know he will discipline me. And I know as I've looked at the, the lives of the saints, even in the New Testament, that at times the Lord uh, disciplines in ways that are hard uh, to wake us up, to humble us, uh, to set us free from something that has us. 9-11 was certainly one of those moments. And this passage is one of those stories. On first reading it, it seems a little harsh. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
By the way, I love John and Tree. They're uh, buddies, and I was delighted when he asked me to be here, and uh, he prayed for us all from, uh, where is he, in Atlanta, I think, he's doing that kind of thing this morning. You've been in David's story, David establishing his kingdom. So often, I don't know if you've observed this, but God will take someone that he's called to something, and before they receive what he has, he puts them out in this wilderness place. Have you noticed that? So Moses, you know, Moses, 40 years old, he's at the, the prime of life, and uh, he's gotten the best education the world can offer in the courts of Pharaoh himself in Egypt, and he thinks, I'm ready to deliver my people. God's given him a vision that he's going to be a deliverer, and uh, what happens to a lot of young men is he took things in his own hands, and he had to run out of the country, right? And God left him there for 40 years, another 40 years. So he, he had this clear call and sense of purpose for his life, and now it's not till 80 that God brings him back from the wilderness, and, and he almost can't do it. He's lost so much confidence. But the point is he went to the wilderness, so he, when he grabs Abraham, right? Abraham, I've got a purpose in your life, and I'm going to call you to do something great with me, great. But first, we got to go and leave Ur and go in the wilderness. Now, here's David. David, you're anointed by Samuel. You're going to be the next king. All right. And he whips the huge Philistine. And everyone's shouting his name. They're making up songs to his name. And he thinks, let's go. Where's my uh, parking space at the palace? And God says, no. You're going to the wilderness. The Apostle Paul receives his call, and he's blinded, staggered by it. And before he goes into ministry, God takes him out in the desert where he unfolds the scriptures to him. Jesus, as he launches his ministry, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit comes like a dove, and the heavens open, and the Father's voice comes and says, this is my beloved, wow, what a moment. I hope we have video so I can see that again in heaven, right? But then, before he starts his ministry, what happens? The spirit, Mark's verb there, is that it impelled him. It drove him into the wilderness. So that's what the Lord does sometimes with his people, with you and me. Before there's a fulfillment of our, our call and purpose, there's a season of life in the wilderness. And David has been in the wilderness some would say he'll look back on great fondness as some of the best years of his life. Because though he's now going to be established as king, uh, his own sin and pride is going to make this a, a painful experience for him, right? You know those stories that are coming. So he says, I want God's presence in Jerusalem. That's where the capital is going to be, like Washington, D.C. And so I need to get the ark there. The Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark, who saw the movies? Come on, you saw the movies. You know, and the Spielberg version of they crack open the lid, right, and the power of God or something comes out and burns them all. I mean, this is a little bit like that story. So the Ark, you know, it's a box. It's about four feet long, two feet high, two feet wide, gold-plated, uh, gold cherubims at each end with their wings like this over the lid and it had rings on it for poles on the sides and 
the Old Testament law was real clear. The ark is supposed to be moved by Levites. That's the, the priestly clan. Levites only are supposed to move the ark, and they're supposed to move it on these poles that they put on their shoulders and, and move the ark. And so if you know that, right away as we come to our story, you say, hmm. So Uzzah, by the way, where's our scripture reader? Is she still here? All those bad names, you got them so well. Man. Just, I will not be as good as you. So just. So David, here we are, chapter uh, 6 of 2 Samuel, and David says, I want the ark back. Everybody, yeah, let's go. Let's get the ark. And so Uzzah says, well, I know how to move the ark. I got a brand new cart. Got a brand new cart. I mean, it's clean, fresh wood, looks great great-looking wheels, and I got some great-looking oxen, and we're going to move that cart. And so they put the ark on the cart. Now, there's two things right away. If you've been paying attention, uh, David first didn't ask God, God, do you want me to take the ark now? I want to. I want you there. I mean, it, it makes sense. As I was reading along, it didn't capture me. I had to have one of my uh, commentaries wake me up. Hey, did David ever ask God? never did everything else all his battles he always stopped and asked God what should I do but now he's full of enthusiasm and I want the presence and blessing of God in my capital city so let's go get that thing Uzzah says I'm ready look at this gorgeous cart I've got freshly made and uh, oxen let's move this thing and uh, they've lost sight of how God directed that that ark should be moved Inside the ark are three things. Anybody remember those three? Don't talk. You don't talk in church. <laughs> do, do you know the three? All right. What are they? Let's hear them. Ten Commandments. It's actually a jar, not a bowl, because a bowl wouldn't have a lid on it. It's a jar. Of so it's kept fresh, so it wouldn't spoil. I knew I could get you on something. And the budded uh, staff of Aaron, which was a miraculous thing, because it was just a wood staff. And God, to show his blessing on Aaron as the priest with Moses, the staff budded and began to sprout like it was a living branch again. Way to go. Yeah. So those three things are in there. And and their importance is pretty clear. Manna was what? That was the food, great food that God provided for them, wafers, sweet like honey every day, don't store it up. Remember that? They stored it up. It's spoiled and got worms and nasty. So just trust me, I'll provide it every day. So that was a picture. Hey, God provided for us in the wilderness. And then there was uh, Aaron's budded staff, which said, God will save us. He will deliver us. He will miraculously deliver us from our enemies. And Aaron's staff reminded him of that. And then the Ten Commandments, God has given us his word. And he will shepherd us by his word so those articles are in the ark as uh, a remembrance of who the israelites are their their history was everything to them as a people in fact as i read about what's happening in israel uh the more liberal factions that are moving away from their traditions one of the things we're seeing happen in this country is they rewrite the history or they diminish the history when you lose the history you lose who you are right the family as a person, you, you got to know your history, good and bad. You, you got to know your history. And so Israel said, we're going to have these articles. God's directed us so we won't forget our story, our history. 
So they begin to move the ark, and uh, the oxen stumble. And Uzzah puts his hand up, very natural thing to do. Oh, don't let the ark fall off the cart. And God strikes him dead. We've seen that happen in other places in the Old Testament where someone offered unworthy offerings and they were struck dead. We jump to the New Testament and there's a similar kind of story, remember, where the church is just getting started and there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and, and on the surface, it, it didn't seem like it was that awful of what they did. They, they had some property at 75th and Thunderbird, you know, and, and uh, the market was good and they sold it and they got 500,000. And, uh, but they came and told Peter, hey, we sold that. We got 250 for it. Here's the 250. We're giving you the whole thing. And they're struck dead. And nobody lied about their pledges after that in the church. <laughs> so sometimes God breaks in to make us remember who we're dealing with. And maybe that's the big message of Uzzah is... Remember who you're dealing with. Don't take it for granted. I am the holy God. I am so different than you. You know, it's interesting when you look at the false religions, even the modern ones, even the American invented religions, that some of you know what we're talking about, they, they have to make God smaller. They have to make him more manageable. Sometimes they even make him human some kind of glorified human. Sometimes they'll make him into a creature like the Egyptians or a, a celestial body. But they have, in some way, they have to make God less than what he really is because he's just too much. It's just too much. What kind of being is right now holding the universe together? You know, one of my favorites is gravity. Anybody here not believe in gravity? We all believe in gravity. Everybody learned about gravity in elementary school. What's gravity? Well, it's that, it's that force that's holding me to the earth. Yeah, well, where is it? Well, it's coming out of the earth. And it's a force. And it's holding you here. And the moon has less of it. Well, yeah, where is it? Can I get it? Well, no, it's just in there. I mean, scientists, they know gravity is... They're not sure why it works and why it works perfectly so that I don't weigh 350 and be crushing down on my knees. I don't weigh 50 pounds so that I'm floating up and hitting the ceiling. It's just right. And it keeps the earth and the moon in just the right rotation. It's the power of Christ, friend. It's the power of Christ. That's what Colossians said. All things were made by him and through him, and he holds all things together by the word of his power. Gravity is the power of Christ. Scientists had to find a word for it. They don't know what it is, really. They don't know where it is, but it is. So this being that's holding all these planets together, and yet on our patio, I hung up the little hummingbird feeder. Who's doing that? Anybody else doing that? That's the coolest thing you can do. Is that all? <laughs> Have you no love for what God has made? 
So we hung, you know, we got bought the healthy red food and put it hanging there in the patio. We watch them come in. I mean, these little guys, they are quicker, faster than an F-16. I mean, they just, they, they hold like an A-10. You guys know what I'm talking about. They can just hold right there and take off. Astounding. They, they can't live very long, I'm sure, with that, you know, all that heart racing and everything. But they're just, they're amazing. They're beautiful. So the God who's holding the universe together by his word also made that gorgeous, wonderful little hummingbird. Well, what kind of being is that? So his word will say things like, my ways are not your ways. I am not like you. I love you. I made you. But you don't really know me. And that's what this chapter reminds me of. Don't get too casual with the living God. Don't get too cozy and friendly. I mean, that's what I enjoyed about worship this morning. There was a sobriety to our worship. We had a time of confession that was powerful and honors Christ. But I love the last words of Stephen before we came into this time of the word that he said, now, Yes, we have sinned, Lord. We've been less than what you've called us to be, but thanks be to God, we are forgiven and loved. Amen? But you, until you see the holiness of God, you don't value the grace of God, right? So the Jews, oh, the Jews, the Jews are just, uh, I mean, they can't get away from the holiness of God. The sacrificial system, all that blood and meat and fire and, and priestly garbs and restrictions and washings. I mean, if there's one thing a Jew got, friend, they got the holiness of God. That God is a being that is pure and righteous, and I am not, and I can't just run into his presence. So that's why when the Jew understands the cross, man, That's why the writer to Hebrews, who's writing the letter to Jewish Christians, says, don't you see now? You can run into his presence. You can run into the Holy One. I mean, that was just so far out of a Jew's thinking and experience. That's why holiness, the fear of God, are all healthy things, aren't they? Because when you really ponder the majesty and hugeness of God, that he made me and that he holds my life in his hands. Now when Christ comes and pays for all my unworthiness, all my ugliness, all my sin on the cross and says, it's, it's all paid, you're free, you're cleansed, come to me, wow. That's why you don't want to rush people to the gospel. You want people to think about who they are without Christ before you lead them to Christ, you know? It's like uh, when your 16-year-old gets the keys. Any parents had that experience? That, yeah, you're all too young. Just don't do that. It's coming. And it's, it's horrible. <laughs> and so what you have to do 
is you have to make sure your 16-year-old has the fear of the car. They have to understand that they have a 3,000-pound machine that can kill people and kill them. When I was in high school, back when the Earth's crust was still hardening, <laughs> uh, at Scottsdale High, which doesn't even exist anymore, it used to be at Indian School in Scottsdale Road, and I guess they looked at the alumni record and said, well, this isn't working, just shut it down. <laughs> but I would take a driver's ed class, and in driver's ed class, they would show us these horrific movies of actual crash scenes. I mean, at first it was like cool, and then it was like, oh. And what they were doing is putting the fear of the car in our heart and mind. And I think that might be what we need to recapture as the people of God for the sake of our children, for the sake of those to whom we love and witness, is now we're talking about a big, holy, awesome God that owes you nothing has all the power, all the authority, and yet, for some reason, he's pursued you. Proverbs 1, I think we had that verse. Did we? Uh, you know, thank you, guys. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, until you acknowledge God, that he is and you're not, that he made you in some way you're accountable to him, until you have that, you could have three PhDs and be stupid, right? Because the fear of God puts you in the right place in the universe, humbly underneath his authority. So the word says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we want our, want our children to understand the fear of the Lord, have a story from my theologian Heidi Lewis, my little three-year-old granddaughter. She was, I should have brought her picture to throw up on you. So her parents taught her, uh, you know, she picked up already, she's listening, that some people say, oh my God. So they told her, Heidi, don't say, oh my God. I love that. But now, you got to be careful, because in front of Heidi, if you say, oh my gosh, She'll go, Papa, no say, oh my God. I mean, if it even sounds like God, she's the little Pharisee that's correcting us now. But, <laughs> but I love that. I love that they're teaching Heidi, don't mess around with God's name. Now, he's not going to strike you dead, but it matters. Christ has fulfilled the law, but the law still teaches. The Ten Commandments still teach great life-protecting and supporting truth. And one of the truths of the Ten Commandments is, don't mess around with my name. It's not a magic formula like some preachers want to say, you know, use his name and he'll make you rich or heal you. Don't mess around with my name. It's not an incantation. It's my name. It represents me. Use my name with respect, holy fear. So, Fearing God doesn't mean I, I'm walking around expecting to get zapped any moment. It just means I respect him. I take him seriously. When I pray, uh, I don't just say, hey, God, what's up? I've heard a guy do that on a church service. Oh. He didn't get struck dead. He might have got 
the flu, I don't know, something. <laughs> Should have gotten something. But how do we address him? Our father, we're his children, he wants us to run to him, but address him as our father. Acknowledge we respect who you are. Not fear him like he's going to punish me. That's for those who don't know Christ. That's, that's the fear they need. There is a God and he is a judge and you are accountable. That's healthy fear that the unsaved needs to experience. But you as a child of God, you fear God in, in a healthy sense. Like as a child, you fear your parents. I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to disobey them. There's consequences. So there's a, a respect. That's what it means to fear God. He put it like this in Hebrews. Faith. What is faith? Believe that I am and that I reward those who seek me. That's beautiful. Believe that I am. In fact, Jesus said, you know, he, when you pray, don't impress us with a lot of words. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't impress us with a lot of words. We already know what you're going to say before you say it. That's pretty personal. Jesus again said, I, I know the hair's on your head. It's getting easier with him and me, but he knows. What's he saying? I'm right there. I'm right there. And that can be great comfort. And when we're in some place we shouldn't be, that can be convicting. And that's good. The presence of God is a purifying gift. It's not just a big eye staring at you all the time. It's a loving Savior who's your friend, who's alongside you. The other thing I love about David in this story, so he, they've taken the shortcut. Eugene Peterson, you guys remember Eugene Peterson? He wrote The Message, uh, wrote some great books. Kind of, uh, he was out of the mainstream of evangelical authors because he was kind of a curmudgeon in the best sense of that word. You know, he, he was never impressed with the modern trends. And he always called us back to uh, what are the basic things a pastor should be doing. You should be uh, praying for your people. You should be discipling or giving spiritual direction. And you should be in the word and teaching them. And I just appreciated that, that when you get overwhelmed as a pastor, are you doing those three things, Sandy? Then you're doing what a long tradition of pastors have done for centuries. But Peterson said, in this story, he thinks Uzzah represents the technocrat. The person who is thinking, well, what's the most efficient way to get this done? And that can creep into the church. Well, just what's the most efficient, effective way? Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that diminishes things that should be slow and inefficient. Like, we'll do that with fellowship as pastors. And, and, you know, pastors, we're a weird group. I'm the first to admit it. And so we're thinking about you sometimes as people were trying to move through a process. I'm sorry. So how do we get them here? And then once we get them here, how do we assimilate them? Aren't you glad to know that we're trying? How do we assimilate you? You know, and, uh, In the best sense of that word. In other words, we want to talk about, think about, read about, how do we help people come here and then become part of us? And invariably what happens is we, we find Uzzah-style fast ways to get you plugged in, get you feeling part of it. And the truth is people just don't work like that. 
You know, whether it, hey, it's the baseball path, you're in 101, then go to 201, 301, four, hey, you're in, you're home. No, friendships are slow. They're awkward, takes time. And so Uzzah reminds me as a pastor, don't try to make quick and efficient what I've designed to be slow, gradual, human. I'm glad that you take time to remember the Lord's death. We do that in redemption every Sunday. The danger is it just becomes rote. So Uzzah reminds me, don't just go through the motions with the wafer and the cup. Pause. Think about, who did this for me? Why would he do this? What does this mean? The rest of the story. David's ticked. Don't you appreciate that? He's ticked. Aren't there times with God when something happens, something breaks, someone walks out of your life, something happens, lousy, and you go, God, I knew it. Don't you do that? I do that. I knew you'd do that. And you, you, he can handle that. I didn't get struck dead. David didn't get struck dead. What's the difference with David and Uzzah? Uzzah has lost the sense of the presence, reality of God, and he's just become a religious technocrat Okay, we've got to move this religious box. Oh, don't let the box fall. Put it on a cart. That's the fastest way to get it there than guys carrying it. That's old school. That won't work. That's why God makes a lesson of him. But it, it put the fear of God in everybody, right? But he doesn't strike David down for being angry because what's David doing? David is always taking God seriously. Even when he's frustrated, even when he has questions, he's still, God, I'm dealing with you. And I believe that's what God loves and appreciates. Deal with him. Take him seriously. Oh, I've got this wonderful, you know, fancy watch that if I gesticulate too much, it says, it looks like you've fallen down. Should we call for help? <laughs> Modern technology. So David says, oh, forget it. I'm not moving this thing. If that's what God, if that's what you're going to do to me, forget it. Just put it in this guy's house. Three months later, he says, okay, I'm ready to do it right. And if you read in Chronicles, which Chronicles is a, a, a similar story to what we have in Samuel about David. In Chronicles, the writer makes clear that this time he got Levites and they put it on the poles and they did it right. And he gets the ark. To Jerusalem and as he comes and just a quick word here before we wrap up you didn't you read that uh, he danced with rejoicing right in uh, chapter 12 the Lord has blessed the household so David went and brought the ark and uh, as he came he danced before the Lord verse 14 with all his might he was wearing a linen ephod that's an undergarment so he wasn't naked he was clothed uh, his wife, who is the daughter of Saul, right, the bad king that we don't want his line to continue, uh, she resents David, I think, already because what happened to her father. And so she uh, disparages him, 
rolls her eyes at her husband, the king, and says, how dare you look like a fool? Worship. Are there certain things you shouldn't do in worship? Some people raise their hands. Some of you Presbyterians go, what are they doing? <laughs> Some of you from more of a charismatic background, you, maybe you even like to move a little bit. In the world. I mean, it, that's your freedom in worship. David was free to worship. The point that I want to make here with David is uh, he understood. He understood how good God is. Even after what happened with Uzzah, and he had time to think about it and pray about it and process it, he still came back to everything you do is good. You've, you've only been good to me, and I want to celebrate that. And we're going to have some more time to worship this morning with communion. I just want you to know uh, you could probably be more free in your worship than you are. And maybe that doesn't happen in here. But when you're alone, when you're on your walk, uh, I was driving in this morning, I had that great uh, Hillsong uh, song, uh, what a wonderful name it is, do you know that one, what a wonderful name? And it has this building chorus, and I just started yelling in my car, yes, yes, no one else is in there, the guy next to me thinks I'm mad at somebody on my phone, but it, it was just so good for my heart to just join in a loud, full expression of my heart of thanksgiving to Christ. Now, I don't say that, that I'm the model. I'm just saying, loosen the strings on your worship. Enjoy God. Somebody buy a hummingbird feeder, would you? <laughs> Look at what he made. And, and be over the top about it. Look at that little thing. It's the same guy that made those cool little quail with their little bobber on their head. I mean, evolutionists, tell me, why did that evolve? Why did quail have that little bobber? It's just because God thinks it looks cool. It serves no purpose for them. <laughs> but God, that, isn't that cool? Yes, and we can see the quail coming. A little Worship him. Worship him for what he has made. Go to the zoo and make it a worship experience. Amen. God loves you and wants you to love him. That's the big command to us. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord. Enjoy the Lord with everything you've got. Love the Lord. That's what he loves when we love and enjoy him. So I, I look at creation, I look at what he's made, and then I move to Christ and the gospel and Christ's love for me and knowledge of me. Then I move to the people that he's put in my life that are beyond anything I could have asked or imagined, and it just goes and goes. So worship takes thought, it takes observation of what's going on around you, and that's where some of us' life is so busy and so demanding that sometimes you're not giving yourself the gift and privilege of stepping back and just seeing what he made and what he's done for you, and give thanks, like David. All right, let's, let's pray together. Lord, uh, these stories together really teach me. They remind me, don't take me for granted, Sandy. I'm here, I'm present. 
honor me, respect me, but know that I love you and that you're my child. And worship me and enjoy me. Don't fear me so much that you're, you're afraid to look up and celebrate and raise your hands. No, look what you have in Christ. All that deserves punishment has fallen upon him. And you are free. And I only see you through my son. Celebrate who you are now in Christ, man. Celebrate who you are now in Christ. It's evidence of my huge love for you. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Bless these dear ones, Lord. May there be something today that you can use to encourage them and convict them, equip them. Do your work for the glory of Jesus. Amen.